doing that, I was face to face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's, there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages. And at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old. And at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person, I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. That's right. Not always at night. That's exactly right. Hi, Eric. Hi. How are you? I'm great. You? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on the show again and having, oh, it's my a, pleasure. having a completely different topic to talk about uh, at length. Uh, yeah. Because you are uh, very well versed in, in this subject as well. So well, I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> It's so strange to me because, you know, UFOs were my first, uh, my first love and, you know, from a little kid and, and I'm still extremely interested in, and I'm still very, um, very tied into all these new reports and, and all the stuff that's coming out and, you know, trying to see where this is all going with the soft disclosure and are we being led astray? Are they trying to make it seem like it's a, uh, you know, a, a serious jeopardizing of our national security, or are they trying to keep us from thinking that they might be benevolent? You know, there's a, just a ton of things to go around this topic. Right. But, but the thing that strikes me so, so strangely is that, that this is not something that's being really discussed a whole hell of a lot. Yeah. Isn't that weird? You know, and, and, when the government, not that we should believe everything we hear from the government, that's not what I'm right. saying, but by and large, Joe Citizen, when you say the government said, they're going to 
at least their ears are going to perk up and you're going to listen, right? Right. And uh, to to have this soft disclosure that UFOs, UAPs, USOs, whatever the hell you want to call them, are are a legitimate concern and that there is something there, you would think you would hear more about it. But everything's been so convoluted with the the pandemic not that that's not a real thing but it just shows that how how one visioned we can get and that's the only thing that there is to talk about yeah i mean the timing's interesting right and i really don't think in my my opinion i try not to come off as being too jaded but i agree you, you have to anything that is coming out of the government is has to be carefully carefully measured and and because there's i I think i read an article with one of the people at the pentagon who said we have to be measured because there's a lot at stake you know there's there's military intelligence there's national security there's public welfare and so everything is measured so certainly the information that's been released has been sanitized right and it's carefully shaped Mm -hmm. but i i agree with you i think it's really interesting that and because I'm not, you and I are not the only two human beings who were, you know, waiting with bated breath for some sort of disclosure. <laughs> and the fact that it came as kind of a whimper, yeah. you know, when, and when you really, when I look at it, and I might be two rose colored glasses, but when I hear what they say, they've already disclosed. I mean, it, it's not the whole shebang like his name is X and he lives here, but you know what I mean? It's still been a disclosure, but it's kind of been like it came as a whimper, not as a roar. It really did. So you wonder, you know, again, the government is really good at the government wouldn't be the government unless it was really good at reading the people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they, maybe they did enough, test studies to find out somehow that now is the time <laughs> because it would happen without a huge uh, disruption, yeah. I guess is the best word to use. Who knows? I mean, that's, that's what they're good at. They're good at figuring out when to say what, right? That's what keeps them in a job. Well, it's, so, interesting. it's interesting that you bring it up that way because I was thinking about this a, a few years ago when uh, I'm not sure if it's the, the current Pope or the Pope before uh, for the Catholic church okay. had, had made a statement that regardless of whatever they are, they are as well creations of God. Oh yeah. Don't, don't that get, was the most get, recent Pope for my yeah. listeners. Don't get me wrong. I'm not professing one religion over the other or anything else. I'm just simply calling calling alert to what the Catholic Pope said um, mm-hmm. as as far as these beings being a um, made by God as well, and that they would most definitely have souls, and that followers of the Catholic religion should view them as such. And you know that was that was a few years ago, and and I thought that was such an odd thing for him to come out and say right unprompted just kind of out of the clear blue really and was that was that a portion of of this uh feel the people out 
see how, yeah. you know, Catholics are probably, I'm taking a guess, but I would imagine the Catholic religion is one of the largest religions in the world. I would go, oh, yes. One I'm of sure. Um, yep. So that's a, that's a pretty big segment of, of the world's population to possibly get a, a reading on how they would react to their church leader making an announcement like that. Yeah. And, uh, and you learn in, and you learn in college, you know, when you take government classes, I remember my government class, one of the ways the government does it is what they call test balloons. They float a test balloon and see, is this a good idea to talk about? They float a test balloon. And if people go crazy, nope, yeah, nope, we never said that, you know, yeah. <laughs> or if it, if it goes over well, then they keep talking and, and it doesn't just need to be about top secret stuff. It could be any sort of uh, policy they're thinking about putting out or anything. They, they quote unquote leak it or they let it out. They kind of judge public again, if they're not, if they're not being able to read the public, they're not going to stay in a job. Right. <laughs> and yeah. if it's a, a government loves to remain the government, right? We have to fight over it every four years. So the people who are there want to stay there. And part of that is being good at what they do and they have to be able to read the public. And so there's a lot of time and energy that goes into polling and things like that. I, someone had told me that, and I don't know, I, I, I shouldn't, I'm going to say this, this could be wrong, but I remember someone saying that for the folks that were uh, registered Democrats when they were getting polled, I'm not, a, I don't register with either party, so I have no way of knowing, but some of these people got polled early. And part of the questions on some of the early polls when Hillary Clinton was running for president was, would you be opposed to president, if, she, if she's elected President Clinton, releasing UFO data? That was mentioned. Really? In when, which, yeah, that was something that was heavily talked about. I have no way of, of, I didn't read that in some crazy website either. It was something that was talked about in the news, I believe. Yeah. But, uh, maybe one of the listeners can tell me, Jeff, you're wrong, but, um, I, I, well, uh, you know, I mean, she may have had, had, she may have had one email that didn't get released that uh, <laughs> would have been, would have been of <laughs> value to, to this segment of population. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but I mean, so it, it is in order for it to have gotten this far, it has to have been right or wrong. Uh, it has to have been politicized in some way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, you know, presidents have thought about doing it. Presidents have thought about not doing it. Presidents have wanted to do it. If they felt it would help their popularity, they weren't able to do it. I mean, who knows? I mean, any of those iterations could be true, but it even it even kind of throws me back to when Ronald Reagan was was president and made his uh, weird weird speech in front of what was it the the UN? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. You know, yeah. was was that an attempt to get a reading on how people's reaction would be to it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, all of it. I mean, he may not he may well not have even had any idea whether that was uh that could have been whoever wrote his speech for him, you know, could have been the one that was like, okay, well, all right, we're going to try to figure this out, see how people are going to react to it, so we're going to throw something real crazy shit out here and, you know, what if and, you know, he may have been none the wiser either. You know, I mean, right. I You know, when you when you boil it down, 
the presidency of the United States is a four-year job. Right. With a maximum of eight years. Exactly. So, so why would the world's secrets <laughs> be, you know, the, you know, the, you have the whole presidential book of secrets and all that stuff. Um, if that's even actually a, a thing, which I doubt that it is, but you know, why would they entrust that kind of knowledge to a, to a short-term employee? Yeah, they wouldn't, right? You know, it, mean, it doesn't make sense to, to do that, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Not at all. I mean, I, I do believe there have been some presidents that have been read in, like what Dr. Greer says, and I don't know how I feel about Dr. Greer anymore, but the one thing you can say about him is his pedigree with the amount of military whistleblowers he's had is second to none. Yeah. And I, so you know, I have, he needs to be respected for that reason, you know. Yeah, I, you know, I have this discussion with my son. His his first documentary was really, really good. Um, yeah, and you know, even even the second one was was that serious? Um, yes, yeah. That that was even good. Um, you you have to go pretty far to produce a bad documentary on UFOs, um, right? You know, as long as you're including some some facet of a story or, or an account that I've never heard of, even though the rest of the show might be shit, I'm still going to enjoy that documentary because <laughs> I learned, I learned about a new event. Um, right. You know, but Dr. Greer, you know, why would a guy walk away from a, a flourishing career as a, as an ER doctor? to right. to do what he's doing and maybe it's because he has a passion for it right other people have done weirder shit yeah. so I, I don't fault him on that but with the advent of his ce5 uh collaborative yeah yeah that to me seems like a uh, a money-making opportunity well, it is right. I mean, that, it feels like it's kind of he's kind of jumped the shark with that, and mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for him. Again, only because, and that's what I tell my my friends too. They're like, "What do you think of him?" I'm like, "All the work he's done with the military whistleblowers, helping yep. curate those statements and curate that body of work, is second to none." And the man has my has my undying respect for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's going on at CE five? I have no clue. I have so, no clue either, and yeah. you know the bottom line is if if the guy is continuing to do to do his work, um, and you know he needs a paycheck. Um, of course, you yeah. Know, so it, I, I'm it, not I'm not really faulting him for doing what he's doing, and I'm not even saying that what he's doing is may not be a legitimate possibility as far as how to produce contact. Yeah. My gut tells me I doubt it. Um but but I don't I don't I don't hold any ill will towards him for doing that aspect of it, but it does kind of put him in a different light with people who now know him as the CE five guy. Because yeah, before before he started doing that, he was he was the disclosure disclosure guy. He was the disclosure yeah, guy. You know, he yeah. was he was the guy that had a bunch of military people coming out and saying, hey, this shit is real and it's in our skies and we don't know what the fuck it is. No, I'm very professional too, though, right? 
I mean, yeah. extremely professional. Like, yeah. I mean, and I and I, it, it kind of bothers me that he is doing this aspect of of that, in that it takes away a little bit of credibility. It it does somehow. Um, and I again, I I think you and I are on the same page. I don't know why it does, but it does somehow. And I'm very open to stuff. I mean, I have a friend that uh, who is very much into this topic, probably a little bit even more than me, believe it or not. Um, some of my family members would be shocked when I say that. But <laughs> um, he and I don't get a chance to talk much. And it's funny because we're both in the same industry. This was just happened a few weeks ago. I haven't even shared this with you. And he, we were having a business discussion and usually our phone calls don't hang up until we update each other on what we've got going on with this topic. Right. Yeah. And so he says, Oh, Hey, I got to talk to you. And I said, yeah, what's up? And he said, Hey, I was out in the desert. Um, yeah. The CE five thing, very weird, but I'm convinced it's real. So like he had an experience. <laughs> I haven't talked to him in any depth, but he's apparently he went out there and did it. So I'll talk to him and report back to you. Yeah, but, uh, it'd be interesting to hear. I mean, I just I, I just interviewed Sherilyn Carter uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and you know she Great she partakes show, by in the it. Way. Thank you. Yeah, um, she was a pleasure to talk to, and you know she partakes in it on a somewhat regular basis. Um, not nearly in the size groups that uh, Greer has. Um, smaller smaller group of people, but you know she's she's saying that they're. Most of what she the most of what she's getting is happening more on ground level than it is anything that's in the sky. Um, that's not to yeah. say that they don't see some stuff up in the sky, but I mean it's it's a weird thing. And you know, I, you know, if you have a group of people that are all concentrating their intent on a on a specific outcome, even though it sounds fantastical. I'm going to jump back to the Catholic religion or Christians or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. religion you are that encourages people to pray for someone's health or, you know, that's when you have a prayer group, that's, that's a large number of people all praying for, you know, Sally Joe down the road to get cured of cancer or, you know, come out of COVID or whatever it is. Right. I, I don't discount the possibility that, a large number of focused intents can produce an outcome that is favorable. So. Oh, I do believe that. And I do, there is one thing that I do at this point in my life do agree with Dr. Greer on, and that's one of his tenets, which is that they're not a threat. And I, I don't know why I feel so strongly about that, there's, well, I'll give you two reasons why. One is my intuition, right? I mean, if, th- if this was like a malevolent type thing, I would think it would be game over by now, right, by now for us, right? Okay, so that's yeah. one. The other thing is who's doing the talking, right? So ultimate, a lot of respect for the people that are involved. They're all former Pentagon people or they're secretaries of defense. And I've got a thing about the military industrial complex. I'll admit it right now. So y'all can tease me, but that's, that, that's the way it is. If, if you're in that field, everything you can't control is a threat, right? Potentially. Yes. 
if it's an outcome that you cannot control, it could be considered a threat. So that that's where I start to have a problem with it because if those are the, and, and, you know, Sam Harris has said this, um, Eric Weinstein, you know, these are scientific giants have said this. Why science isn't at the front of this. Yeah. Why the, why is the military at the front of this? Because the military at the front of this is going into this as it's, as if it's a threat. Yeah. Well, you know, because, in, in fairness, because they don't have an answer for it. Yeah. I mean, Doc Commander Fravers tells you, right? Yeah. We did. We didn't have an answer for it. Yeah. You know. Well, and, and in fairness, you know, I mean, with what we as um, uh, Joe Blow American or Joe Blow anybody for any country for that matter, you know, from the the early nineteen fifties on. Right. Any any uh, sci-fi spoof movie or uh, feature-length movie or anything has predominantly been displayed as them being an aggressive culture coming to take right. our planet, coming to take us, coming to breed with us, coming to you know destroy us, to eat us, whatever. Yeah. So there's that aspect of, but but some of that is because that's what we would do. that that is uh that's a very good that's a very good look at it um you know so the number of movies about extraterrestrials um and that you know just using that word is you know for 40 years 35 years of my life of course they're extraterrestrial. Of course yeah, they com- right. they're coming they're coming here from somewhere else. I, in the last 10 15 years um I'm wondering is that right? You know, are they are they us from the future coming back to tell us how not to jack things up? Is it us yeah. from another dimension seeing how we're doing things as opposed to how they did things? Is it us well, remember, from, remember one of the items from Rendlesham, right? Yeah, where they where the the craft spoke to the one of the airmen yeah. and said, "There's nothing to be afraid of. There's no beings inside this craft. Uh, we're from you, five hundred thousand years from now." Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, what are they? Where do they come from? Probably not going to ever find out the truth anyway, at right. least in our lifetimes. Um, but we have finally gotten the truth that they do exist and that they are now recognizing people that see them as not being completely out of their brain. Well, you know, there is one thing when, since we're talking about how Hollywood has shaped it, there's something that has come to my awareness later in my life that I didn't realize about a very famous story on this topic, which is the Travis Walton case. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught Travis Walton or when you, I don't know if you've caught Jacques Vallée talking about Travis Walton and then saw later interviews with Travis Walton. Um, I don't know why I never picked up on this, but it's always been a part of his story. So when you talk about who they are, 
there's, you know, the famous scenes that's in the fire in the sky movie where he's fighting the grays. Right. And he's, he, they're, they got him on a table and he's trying to fight him off. And in, in, in his story, he does fight them off. And he said they were like children. I mean, you'd, you'd hit them, barely hit them and they'd fall down. You know? Right. Yes. And so it, it and Jacques Vallée is the one who kind of broke this story for me. He's like, the whole gray thing is only part of the story. The real important part of his experience they never put in the movie is when he broke out of that room, who was there? Humans. Yeah. Or human, human H- type human, figures. Human-ish, yeah. Human-ish, right? And now he thinks that they were trying to help him. Like he would have died from whatever the ship did to him unless they took him in and tried to help him. Right. Yeah. And that's, so, that's been his contention for, for quite some time. Yeah. Is that, but uh, for whatever reason, Eric, I was never aware of that part. Like I thought that was the story. Gray's, you know, needle in the eye, you yeah. know, the whole thing that was in the movie. That's well, it's a, it's a very good movie. And, uh, it is. you know, but to Travis Walton, you know, for having, um, commented multiple times that they took a lot of Hollywood liberties with what his experience was in there to make it more terrifying to obviously sell tickets to get people to go see the movie. It's right. still a great movie. Even it was a e- great movie. Even yeah. even from the aspect of somebody that's just going to see a, a horror movie, um, because that experience in there was terrifying and him ripping through that rubbery flesh looking stuff that was stretched across his face i mean i still have visions of the first time i ever saw that movie thinking god that that's some creepy shit right there that movie Um, still scares the shit out of me (laughs) you know but um you know kudos to to travis for for relaying that that wasn't exactly what happened and that they did take some liberties with it and and i think valet's commentary on it is is pretty pretty substantial i think it's you know it's something people should listen to yeah and i'd love to talk about this at some point in the show but that's been a big part of where i've landed on this topic now is what if they are some form of us and i've worked out some some theories over the years on this (laughs) yeah well by all means you know let's 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 circle around to it i'm gonna say one last thing about what what we're talking here um, you know, the, the, the aspect of whether or not they're here to, um, you know, cause some kind of nefarious activities with us or whether they're here to, uh, as a, as a non, as a non threat, I think the thing that does disturb me is, is the abduction cases. Yeah. You know, you're right. that, that part to me. Now, granted, um, if they don't look like us and they're not from here or they're from a different time, you know, the chances are they're not going to act like us. They're not going to think like us. They're not going to have the same morality that we currently do. Um, because if you look at us, take a look at what our morality standards are right now compared to what our morality standards were in 1950. Mm-hmm. So, so don't tell me that our morality doesn't change. Right. Um, so you know i mean are they are they less are they less likely to feel that they're they're being a um an interference or a, a 
by them inserting themselves into somebody's life and and doing what they're doing do they not do they not real realize the culpability that we hold them to because of what's being done or are they just looking at it as a matter of fact as a, uh, an act of science or or something like that where we're looking at it as an act of an aggression or a right. you know a, a life threatening situation when Possibly I don't know which I don't know which one's nice. more disturbing though. <laughs> oh, I, I agree hundred percent. But you know, I mean I yeah. I kinda gotta look at it that way. It's like, you know, if Right. Yeah, it I mean they call it a rabbit hole for a reason, right? Exactly. No, you make good points. I mean I'm and I'm not definitely in the I mean, I'm definitely not in the camp of that they've gotta be all good, right? Because if they're that far an advanced species that they can travel space, they're probably far enough advanced to be highly complex individuals. Right. Right. And a highly complex race of people are not just all good and not just all bad there. You know, there's, there's probably a ton of complexity there that we don't even understand. Right. Right. So yeah, but yeah, who knows? I mean, the truth, I don't need, I can't even believe we got this far. (laughs) You know, I, I mean that sincerely. I mean, well, you've got videos being posted by the Navy, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, these are real. Yeah. You know, that's – who would have thought? You know, and so I heard – you say that, and it, that reminds me. I heard a – I don't even know who it was speaking about it, but they they gave – I felt they gave too much credence to the uh, the original New York Times article – that kind of outed this whole thing and they kind of, they kind of, I wish I could remember who the hell it was, but they kind of gave that event, that, that first New York times article so much, um, so much weight that it caused this, this disclosure of sorts that we've, we've gotten, and I, yeah. I just I disagree. I don't think it was probably someone at the New York Times that said that. <laughs> you know, impossible. It, 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 um, right. But you know, I I can't see that one newspaper article is going to be like, oh, okay, yep, hey guys, gather around. And New York Times came out with an article. We gotta we gotta tell everybody about this shit now. You know, right? That didn't happen. So no, I think I think the opposite happened. I think that they were brought in as the vehicle to do it. That's just my personal belief. So, yeah, but I think disclosure was happening, you know, or some, whatever this, whatever this is right now, it was happening without the New York times. The New York times were involved. That's how, that's how I personally feel. Right. And my feelings are exactly that the New York times was a conduit to correct, to be that one of the first little talons that, that was released. But I will say this though, it's a hell of a conduit, right? Yeah. Because they're like, it's not the New York Post, <laughs> right? Yeah. Times, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. it's the one, right? Um, it's one of the few standing, but it's the one, right? Yeah. And and uh, if you're if you're putting a lot of credence on a newspaper, that's usually the one that you that you re- refer to. Um, yeah, it's fascinating set of circumstances, and 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 what. I mean, I have a lot of my friends who are very unhappy with the the lack of further information, and I'm still kind of 
reveling in what's already been said. So, well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I get their, I get their standpoint. I, I get being disappointed because there was a yeah. small part of me that was disappointed as well. Um, but having common sense and understanding that, you know, are they going to come out and just say, yep, well, we got this race that's coming from Zeta Reticuli and we got this race that's coming from blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you had to know that whatever information they were going to give was extremely limited and extremely need to know, even though we don't need to know uh, in their eyes. So it was, it was not a surprise to me uh, that, that, what was the the total number of pages that was released to the the public was what 109 pages yeah something like that and what out of 100 and 104 accounts mm-hmm. reports only one only one only one could be explained away yeah. mm-hmm. now don't tell me you've only got 104 reports Right, you of know, course. I mean, when when well, did you know. when did you start doing this back in you know April? <laughs> when did you start yeah. keeping track? And I, I don't know if you saw this. I was going to text you about this actually. Um, someone posted a document that just got released, and in that document, it na- it names. It's kind of what we talked about when we when we brushed on this topic the last time we spoke. Um, the Navy is the branch of branch of the military that is running this program. Yes. Yeah. And why wouldn't so, it, why wouldn't it be the Air Force? Of course. That's yeah. That's kind of what I touched <laughs> on before. You know. Well, and that's what took me back to that. That's why I wanted to talk a little bit more about that that book that I referred to the first time, where the author of that book spoke to. You know, he was trying to do a a, a deep dig on possibly what could have been happening with Germany and during world war two. And mm-hmm. what were these, you know, what were these crazy foo fighters about? Do we have anti-grav possibly or anti-gravitic assist, um, in aircraft today that is not being talked about. Um, he feels this person that wrote the book feels there is, we can talk about that in a little bit, but there was that one interview that really stuck with me. And it was when, he met with the head of NASA's advanced propulsion lab. And I already talked about this. I'll make it quick. That person told him, this is the person in charge of trying to figure out how we're going to get to Mars, how we're going to get people to Mars, right? Which is a lot different than getting a drone to Mars. Mm -hmm. And he said, everyone in this building shares the same existential dread that the things they're researching that we have given our lives to we're we are all afraid that it may turn out someday that the air force has had this technology for the last 30 years Mm -hmm. or longer or longer. And I thought that was so fascinating that he didn't say the government. He said the air force. Yeah. And then now you have the Navy talking about this and the air force is dead silent. Why? Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time with that or it's very interesting. I don't know that I have a hard time with it. It's very, it's very interesting to me. Well, and not to hear from any other aspects of the, uh, the armed forces. Right. You know, I mean, we've, we've got soldiers deployed everywhere. Well, some of them are coming home now. Um, 
know, uh, why not other branches of the military? They're right, all exactly. they're all trained observers. Well, some people have speculated it's because we don't that the the world's governments don't have a UFO problem; they have a USO problem. Well, and that's that was going to be my next lead into why possibly the Navy, right? Because it's they're in and out of the water mm-hmm. more than they're coming. You know, yeah, that's their thing. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, that. That book, um, am I allowed to cite a book uh, yeah. on the show? Oh, yeah, if, go ahead. I, I invite your listeners to hunt this book down, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell them why. It's called The Hunt for Zero Point by Nick Cook. And the reason why it struck me was, A, the topic, which I'm always good for a good book on the subject, but Mr. Cook is a aviation journalist and the company that he works for, he may still work for them. I think he does. But you need your listeners need to know that this gentleman works for Jane's Defense Review. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you don't know who that what what that firm is, that's like the Wall Street Journal of the defense industrial base. They are that's like the New York Times of military tech. Okay. And so this man is heavily vetted. He could have destroyed his career writing this book, but it is a fascinating book and it does, you know, there's some real things out there um, that people are talking about in the industry about that. Some of this technology might be present, may not be, but you know, they they had a, he had a really interesting piece in there on the B2. And let's, because you, you specifically pointed out the B2. In, right. uh, in a text message to me and I, I was interested I'd like to hear what uh, what what you have to say about that well for his in his book I don't want to give the whole book away but just some high points is it started with there's a gentleman in Great Britain who is like considered like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of military aviation technology mm-hmm. and every year he writes some sort of yearbook about this is the stuff coming out this is the stuff that's been out. This is stuff changing. There's a lot of people that track this information, right? And it's not just espionage. It's op- open air, you know, that people write about it. And this gentleman made a comment about the B2 saying that we've determined that, the, that you know, Northrop's not lying. These are the mo- engines they're using in the B2 spirit. And... Everyone that I talk to who's an engineer says that plane cannot get off the ground with those engines. Not with a bomb load. Or it would have a very difficult time. It wouldn't really be able to. Because of the weight of the. Yeah, it's just that the engines are very uh, not. They're very uh, low power compared to the airframe, so to speak. And so he's the one that started it. And so this caught this. Mr. Cook, Nick Cook's eye apparently, and he started looking into it. And there is, you know, he was able to go back all the way back into the forties and fifties. And some of the Northrop engineers started fooling around with technologies. And then it just went dark silent. And then, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rumors that in the B2, the entire crew compartment sits inside a Faraday cage in that plane, like all the avionics and electronics are inside that Faraday cage and the whole front leading edge 
of the V, if you believe the rumors, is positively charged to just a lot of volts, <laughs> a lot of megavolts or, you know, a lot of wattage. And the back plane, the, the, you know, the, the bat wing, if you will, that's charged with a ton of current to in, in the negative. So you have positive in the front, negative in the back. I'm not a physicist, but there's something to that that creates lift. It's not anti-grav. It's anti-gravitic assist. Right. And he went so far as to say that someone told him that the reason why there's a bat wing at all has nothing to do with stealth. It has those points on the back of the B2 allow that current to discharge more efficiently into the atmosphere. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And a lot of that book goes, deals a lot with some very interesting characters, which I happen to read about in other books, which were involved in, like, Nazi Germany. I know it sounds crazy, but there's just there's just strange stuff that goes back to that, you know, back to that time in our, in our global history. Well, and, I don't. I don't think bringing up Nazi Nazi Germany is is crazy at all because you know. I mean, when you when you look at the the vast number of my numbers might be wrong, but wasn't it twenty five hundred um, active participants in in our, what we into? What am I trying to say? Twenty five hundred. German scientists brought into our U.S. rocket program. Yes, yeah. You know. Yeah, and some of them were very interesting. I mean, all of them were fascinating, very talented. But yeah, we wouldn't have gone to the moon without them. Um, I think Annie Jacobson, I don't want to be, I don't want to correct you because I don't know the number, but I think Annie Jacobson, who wrote a book on the subject, she's considered an authority it was around 1800 actually is who America wound up with. Is but, that, yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I was just, I was just kind of pulling a number from no, right. the it's vast lot, reaches right. of my brain. Yeah. And they weren't good people. Like I think the government tried to say, yeah, but we just got the good ones. No, they yeah. were really <laughs> bad folks. Yeah. You know, those, those underground cave bases that dotted Poland didn't get built by happy workers. Right. I, I don't so, know why I'm drawing a blank on the main guy. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Yeah, exactly. The big guy. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I can't believe I can't yeah. think of his name. But Come on. Yeah, he was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. But, well, you know, one of the well, most, I shouldn't be doing what, a podcast anymore because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but really, if I may one of the most interesting figures of that whole thing with Operation Paperclip was not our friend who was the big head honcho, right? It was this little Austrian forester named Victor Schauberger. Have you ever heard of him? <laughs> yeah, he was like a modern-day, uh, well, an early modern-day Da Vinci. Right, exactly. I mean, he was and, a, uh, and a very accomplished artist, he was a engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was a, a a forestry warden, I believe is yeah. the the term that was used back then. Yeah. Um, 
and and a lot of his studies correct me if i'm wrong a lot of his studies were based on trying to understand the the biomechanisms of nature correct and the fact that the natural forces on this planet are not you know he said it, he said it best you know man is man's science is obsessed with explosion heat and expansion right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and that breaks down past a certain point you know you burn something and it it, it creates energy that you can harness or you explode it you know the old fighter jet saying you suck it in the front, you blow it up and shoot it out the back. That has a limit to it. What Victor Schauberger was obsessed with was the natural processes of implosion. Werner von Braun. There it is. <laughs> I knew it'd come to me. It was going to come at the wrong time. Right? Sorry. Gotta, Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to get it no, out. No, you're good. I was bugging me too. Now I can relax. <laughs> um, so it was all about this implosion, right? And, the way water needs to be cooled and the way, I mean, there's a book out there by an uh, Australian scholar of Schauberger named Callum Coates. It's a book that's out of print, but listeners should be able to find it on uh, eBay. That's where I found mine. It's called Living Energies. And in that book, there are the pictures and the drawings and accounts of what Schauberger created called the repulsing which was using vortices and implosion to create a device that could fly. And I was shocked. I read Living Energies years ago, a couple, three, four years ago. Let me interrupt interrupt real quick. When you say fly, are you talking in a... Um, in the sense of what we would think a, a plane flies, or are we talking about more something akin to levitation and and just uh, suspension? The way I understand it, the latter two. It's not okay. It's yeah. not a planned form that is, you know, moving air underneath it faster than on top of it to create lift, like an airplane. It is creating lift on its own through compounding what what they what the family calls i get the the family still releases a magazine in austria called implosion and it's just the constant work that this man did um and he i was shocked you know so i read living energies a few years ago and i was completely enamored with this whole thing you know there was so much more to it than just this little repulsing craft that he built that did fly according to an account um when it did fly I believe he was already under the "quote unquote" care of the Nazi government because he was taken yeah, to and, a camp, and he worked for them against his will. He worked for them against his will, and then he ended up working for us against his will. He just didn't he want did. to work, did he? No, he didn't. He was lazy. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he just didn't want to work for them. But we ended up getting him, uh, how whatever getting him means, and he ended up dying a very poor man similar to Nikola Tesla uh, in 1958, I believe. Sounds very similar. Very similar. Completely different. You know, Nikola Tesla, who is also a brilliant human being, if he was human, um, you know, he had all the static discharge and the big electricity. This man was teaching you why trout don't have to flap their tail fins to stay still in a a fast-moving stream. 
So it's a very quiet energy. But I've seen what he's talking about with my own eyes. It was always crazy to me that they did that. You know, now you that know. you now that you mentioned that. Yeah. Do you ever go yeah. trout fishing and yeah. the trout are not moving? Yeah. It's because it's creating vortices down the side of it. And have you ever seen a trout flare its gills and it moves forward? I've seen that. Uh, not that I not that I noticed, but I but well, wasn't looking either. Victor Schalberger says that's how they move forward when they don't really want to expend a lot of energy. They flare their gills and they pump CO2 down the sides of their bodies, and it creates a forward momentum with the vortices. So down the side of a fish, you have those, uh, uh, what are they called, the, the little dots that run alongside. Um, yeah, right. like the lateral line? Yeah, the lateral line, and they yeah, have the okay. little dots that run along the side there, mm-hmm. and those detect in many in many fish, sharks, things like that, electrical currents in mm-hmm. the water. Yeah. What yeah. does that mean? I, mean, I how, have no idea. But we're well, talking we're talking electrical but, with uh, you know, yeah, living specimens. What, so. Yeah, and what Schauberger talks about is these little vortices that the shape of that fish creates down the sides of it, that it doesn't have to expend any energy to stand in that current. I mean, I've fished for trout, and I've never, I've always wondered, I'm like, stupid me, I was always like, well, maybe there's no current down where the fish is, but then you walk over there, and you're about, your feet are about taken out from underneath you <laughs> when you're in your waders, yeah. you know, and so it wasn't adding up but it's not something I ever really thought about until I read his book. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I've seen that a million times. Never knew why. Well, so, you know, there, there has to be some aspect of aerodynamics at work there as well. You well, know, it's hydrodynamics. Hydrodynamics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what he became famous for. No one knew who he was until the story goes, there was this Austrian prince that was flat broke, but had this amazing forest full of this timber that was worth a lot of money but it was up in a mountain and Schauberger built a water flue F L U E. This is why he became world famous early in his career. He figured out how to get every one of those logs down off that mountain on this water flue with his understanding of vortices and how water moves without a single jam in those logs. And he made that prince a lot of money. Hmm. So, but this isn't a show about Victor Schauberger, only to say that he became. I was surprised that he was such a prominent figure in Nick Cook's book about anti-grav, because at the end of the day, he became the focal point for Hitler in terms of what may or may not be the Foo Fighters. Talks a little bit about that. Yeah. And then, if he's a kook, we expended a lot of resources to have him under the care of the United States government until 1958. And, and, that, which he was, and that's when he you know, died, wasn't it? It was when he died. I mean, he yeah. sum, summarily just let go, so to speak, back out onto the streets. So, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that quick, but Well, the, yeah. thing, the thing that I like about my show is that it's my show. No. Right. <laughs> the thing I like about this show is that, more times than not, I get to have discussions about pertinent people in in fields that don't necessarily get talked about that much. You know, we could have easily 
started on a on a discussion about Alan J. Hynek or you know Josh sure. Lay or um, you know and a number of other people and these are these are the things that that I really enjoy is being able to bring people that are are part of a subject matter that when you look back at these people, there's, there's a lot of credibility behind them. Right. You know, and just like what you're saying about, uh, you know, two very large world powers ended up using this guy to try to get him to, to accomplish what they were trying to do. Right. You know, and, and, it, whether you, whether they you're whether they whether you're a nut or not, I mean, that that's you kind of have to pay heed to that to some extent, right? Yeah, and on top of that, one of the reasons he I I read in the book it is in in one account of his life, one of the reasons why to add a third player into it because you can't have the end of the Nazi regime until you have the 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 fight over the scraps between the United States and the Soviet Union, right? Right. So one of the reasons why he fled into the arms of the United States was that the Soviets had already taken its home and took everything out of it back in Austria because there was an absolute grab for these people at the end of the war between the UK, the US, and the Soviets. So that indicates that the that Russia may also have a, a good portion of his uh, personal intellect. Correct. Because of his notes and, and his, mm-hmm. his workings. But, but we wound, but the U.S. wound up with him. Yeah. It's, it, it's kind of an interesting thing to read about when you read some of the historical accounts because there's historical evidence about that whole end of the war that there was like intense negotiations like United States intelligence, British intelligence, and Russian and Soviet intelligence knew exactly where every base was underground, according to what, what is starting to come out. And there was all these intense negotiations as the war was drawing to a close, like, okay, we're going to get this one, we're going to get this one, don't get the But what what according to what's been talked about now again this is mentioned in Nick's cook book, Nick Cook's book was that the Russians would get to many of the bases that were supposedly theirs in the negotiation and we had or the U.S. had already been there so one could argue what was the Cold War really about or was it about that they were so you know sore at the fact that we got into these bases before them and took a lot of the spoils before they got there thinking that everything had been kind of negotiated and it wasn't, you know, it's just interesting speculation. But a lot of that, you know, is, you know, if you read the book, Mr. Cook does a good job at laying out historical facts around that, you know, and he's in the know, right? He, he researched it. So I just read the book. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So the other Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the other thing I was just going to say, staying on Germany really quick, if I might, the the other thing that's really been in the radar for those of us that are involved in this topic is Antarctica. That's what I was going to lead into. Oh, cool. <laughs> and so 
this is why you're so good at what you do, Eric. You already knew where it was going. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of Linda Moulton Howe, and I think she does a great job with some of her military whistleblowers in terms of Antarctica, and I think it's fascinating. My intuition tells me the same thing as those people. There's something going on down there. And I don't really need to go any further than two events in history surrounding Antarctica to that tell me three letters, WTF, why did you do this? Um, two big head scratchers in like the, the, the saga of World War II can Both I, of them have to do can I, can it in take Antarctica. A, can I take please. a guess as to one of them? Yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> 1947 Operation High Jump. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but then even <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, it start. Yeah, uh, it, it ended in February of 1947. So, but even just as crazy though, Eric, is that also has historians sh- scratching their heads, which is, I mean. If you read the history books, they'll tell you, like, I mean, think about what, think about what Germany did after World War I. In complete secrecy, or relatively complete secrecy, they built one of the most, you know, ominous war machines ever put onto the field. Which was? We didn't know they, which was their entire war machine, whether it was the Luftwaffe, the tanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were pretty advanced, right? Yeah. I mean... Some of the rifles they were using near the end of the war ended up becoming the Kalashnikov. I mean, they were they invented a lot of stuff. The first jet, you know, rocketry, you know, but and so a lot of historians talk about how nothing that Germany did, or let me say it a different way, everything that Germany did leading up to World War II was something that was extremely important to the war effort the Reich, right? Of course. Everything they did as a nation was extremely focused on the Third Reich. So why in the hell did you, on the very eve of World War II, send a ton of people to Antarctica, which is exactly what they did? They sent a ton of people down there to, to <clears throat> excuse me, found New Schwabenland, New Swabia, in 1939 people are still perplexed right yeah they came up with answers about <clears throat> well they wanted new whaling grounds or you know and then somewhere down the list was well they wanted to scope it out for a new sub base okay cool so then the war happens and then out of the blue after we're still trying to rebuild from world war ii and historians will tell you that after World War II, we really didn't have a Navy, right? A lot of the ships were damaged and needing repair, mm-hmm. but but there wasn't really a war going on, so the Navy wasn't getting a lot of funding to rebuild ships because we'd won, and we didn't really need, did we need a Navy anymore? We didn't really have an enemy at that time, and we didn't have a lot of people. We sent a lot of people home. So why, in 1947, did we send Task Force 68? I looked it up just this, just today because I wanted to be prepared. 4,700 men, 13 ships, all combat ships. Yeah, all warships. All warships and 33 aircraft go to Antarctica. Why? Why are we still there? You know, it's just there's something, 
happening down there that is an extreme focus that in two very, I mean, at a benign way to put it as an awkward time in the history of both those countries that they did that type of expenditure and for what? And, and so it kind of, this all starts to gel for me as something was spooling around back then. And what if it's a form of us, you know, or what's under the ice? It's really kind of well, crazy. I mean, that's, was, that's the big question. What's under the ice? What is under the ice? I mean, there's accounts, historical accounts of African merchant Marines being approached by German U-boats in the 50s down in the southern seas near Antarctica, and they weren't, they weren't aggressive. They were trading with them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's there's, there's, a, I've never, I've there's historical of accounts of that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of U-boats that are missing. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not making it up. I mean, right. No, geez, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, not... I'm probably paraphrasing some of this, but I mean, well, it's just a conversation. There, I mean, nobody's yeah. expecting you to have hard facts. It's, you're, you're not, a, yeah, good. you're not an expert on this. Uh, I mean, we're just two interested parties talking about a subject that is unusual and trying to, trying to make sense of it. Yeah. But really? Is, but, is, is there, is there not, is there not some kind of world recognized treaty about Antarctica that is basically nobody can lay claim to any portion of it? Uh, that's correct. It's kind of been divided um, my understanding is when Germany founded New Slavia, they were actually taking over an area of Queen Maudland that technically belonged to Norway at the time. So, so you're right. There is an Antarctic treaty that says the continent belongs to all nations. But if you look at who is doing most of the exercises and scientific flights, and it's really us, us and the Russians – I mean, there's other countries there, but yeah, and isn't there isn't, at, isn't there a significant no-fly zone as well? Yes, there are. Yeah, you know, and for what purpose would that be? I mean, how many no, uh, how many no-fly zones are there in the U.S.? Well, the guy that was that's come forward, um, I believe his name is Bryant S. He was a crew chief on a Hercules. He was on. He flew in Antarctica for most of his career. He was not the pilot of the aircraft, but he was riding in the back. And he's got some really cool tales. He's is, this, gone, is this the guy that had to go on the emergency run to uh, retrieve to get the scientists? Yeah, yeah. A group of scientists. Yeah, yeah, that weren't there. Yeah, <laughs> and then they were there. Um, yeah, and he he describes that they accidentally, because of a storm, they were accidentally diverted into the no fly zone, and then they got in huge trouble. Right. Yeah. 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 Even though they, even though they were even though they weren't the ones who diverted them, you know? Um, but yeah, they were said that their aircraft flying over was going to dis- damage sensitive measuring equipment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure it's a mysterious, <laughs> it's a mysterious place. I mean, just naturally, uh, because of its, uh, you know, because of its, uh, 
being a frozen wasteland and, you know, basically uninhabitable uh, right. by any kind of natural means. Um, but then when you start adding in all this unusual interest from world powers, it kind of makes you wonder what what the hell's going on there i mean i guess you could i guess yeah. you could look at it as you know maybe it's an undeveloped uh, potential source of uh, um you know oil or uh, coal or um some kind of uh, natural resource yeah um maybe it's as simple as the ice is melting and what's under the ice may not be underneath it for very much longer you know, and what it was just a couple of years ago, wasn't it? That uh, there were there were several well known people that that made a. In fact, wasn't one of our astronauts visited, and then ended up having some kind yeah. of a, um, some kind of health issues? Uh, yeah, it was, was Buzz with yeah, John Buzz Kerry. Aldrin. Yeah, yeah, he was there with Senator John Kerry. That's right. It was some- Kerry. Yep cryptic tweet that I've just seen the face of evil and then shortly after that the tweet was pulled and he was flown medevaced out for a health issue yeah you know yeah. what the hell what's that about what the hell I have, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about man there's just it's supposed to be some winter wonderland but our country that we live in is spending a lot of money <laughs> our money to go down there and be there all season long and if you believe the military people that have come forward, they've the growth of our presence there has exponentially grown in the last ten years. Why they they say why, and you know anybody can go listen. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they have their own stories to tell. Well, but, going back to Linda Moulton Howe, I think uh, right was that's it, who I'm talking about. The people that have gone to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there were reports of finding these cavernous underground uh, um, areas that were just the walls were like melted sheets of ice and uh, yeah. odd odd illuminated lighting and and things like that that and the caverns were there because the, the Germans spoke about that when they founded New Schwabenland they were in a cavern and there's underground I mean there's under ice lakes there I mean there's some rumors that you boat captains talked about having charts of all the waterways under the ice Yeah. to get in there. I mean, it's a fantastic story that no one's made a dime off of, you know, if it's, if it's a lie, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's fantastic stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd love to know the truth someday. Well, maybe they did make a little money off of it in the land that time forgot. Those that old, wasn't a lot of those that old, wasn't a lot of money, man. Those, those old movies. Well, back in its time, it probably made a decent buck. Yeah, you're, you're right. Was that the old Doug McClure films? Yes, it was. Yes, I love those movies. <laughs> Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah. yeah, I love that stuff. You know, which brings yeah. me to you know, I mean, there's some speculation that you know, there's there's an entrance or. It's been talked about that there could possibly be an entrance in, in that area to uh, of all things the hollow earth. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, right? Um, I don't know a whole lot about it other than it keeps getting talked about. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. Is it real to expect that the Nazis, I mean, there's people that, you know, if, 
well, let me just say it this way. How is someone going to live down there after the country they, they fought for is no longer in business? Yeah. Right. And I'm talking about the Nazis that went there. And if there's U-boats popping up on the Southern coast of Africa, they're probably, you know, and it's intimated that they're probably living in Antarctica even after high jump, you know, well, you know, where does, so where does, where does the initial interest come from? Is it, is it just some random Nazi dude says, I think we should go look at our Antarctica. And somebody says, yeah. you know what? That's a good idea. Let's go look at Antarctica. But well, I, where, where does, I, where does that information come from? How does, how, you know, I mean, well, what normal leads you to that real society, right? Yeah. Is that, is that where you were going? Kind of. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. There was the tool society and the Vril society that had, they were occultish, right. Mm-hmm. And they had Hitler's ear. And a lot of what happened was based on some of the stuff they advised him on, according to, if you believe some of that mythology around it. So, yeah. Well, I so think it's it been, them. I think it's been fairly well proven that, that Hitler was, very much taken with occultism and exactly and right. you know the even the extra the possibility of extraterrestrial existence oh for sure you know so yeah i mean it's i i agree with you that's that's not i mean the man wanted the man me. wanted to rid the world of a specific breed of human being so right. the, you know you, you can't really put anything past him and right. uh, and his modes and modes and methods were you know questionable and 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 terrible well, but and that kind of leads you back to the same point so if the goal was to do what he did which was horrible right one of the worst mm-hmm. moments of human history right where does antarctica play in all that right what why <laughs> it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me unless there's something really important there you know you know but then you, you this folks i'm going to apologize in advance well not in advance we're already an hour into it i'm going to apologize because this is this is just a couple of guys rambling about an issue that we don't know anything but you know when you you talk when you look at what hitler was trying to do and what he what his vision of his perfect army was going to be what his 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 perfect people the aryans were going to be when you look at reports from people who have had extraterrestrial we'll call it that experiences with what is known as the nordics right tall blonde blue eyes Stoic, slightly larger than average, premium specimens. Right. You know, was was he attempting to create a a race that was going to be viewed as or accepted by this other race as being the the chosen ones? If there was a plan of extinction, was that his plan? Yeah, to exactly. Have, to have part of his lineage be uh, what what was able to survive. Well, as horrific as what he already is, as horrific as what we know he already did, and why he already tried to do it, 
you could easily go further and just accept exactly what you just said. You know, maybe he believed in that race. You know, yeah. it's crazy to think about, but I've, it's, I'll, I'll it's also crazy what we ex- what Earth experienced during that time. You know, and this this is literally the first time I've ever thought of that that aspect of it. That's what I love yeah. about having these conversations with people like you is is 99% chance that it's complete horseshit and that it's just some kind of a correlation I'm drawing between the two. But it's like, man, what, what was, what was the penchant behind having to be blue eyes and blonde hair and, you know, beautiful, perfect specimens of, uh, when, when he wasn't himself. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's really bizarre. Well, I think what happens with the topic of world war two is there's already been so much stuff like, well, like we just talked about with Antarctica, so many things that don't make sense, but were like huge expenses of human endeavor, right? That seemingly don't make sense. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of underground bases all through Poland and whatnot. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff underground. Apparently there's a lot of, really li- apparently there's a lot of underground bases in the U S as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The dumbs. Yep. For sure. But you know, back then, I mean, you could argue that we probably have better ways of tunneling and things now, but back then it was all human labor, right? And so you would think there was a lot of bases built in a very short time. (laughs) And, you know, those are known places. Those, those are tourist attractions. Those are not secret, you know? And so a lot of what happened then is just fantastical if it wasn't so horrible. Right. And it's, you know, it's, there's just some, there's always, there's always some little snippets of mystery for me around that whole period of time. And yeah, it's, and we haven't even talked about the Foo Fighters. No. And we're not talking about the band, ladies and gentlemen, even though I love them and they are one of my, uh, my absolute favorites. Um, They just happen to have a name of, of, of a, phenomenon that happened during world war ii where u.s british and and i assume other countries pilots were witnessing these uh uh, interactive balls of light during uh during the war campaign that would uh zip around and seemingly observe without much much interaction i don't i don't recall ever reading many articles that showed that they, they were like involved an involved yeah. party in any of these uh, uh, dog fights or anything like that. But they always seem yeah. to be around and, and almost uh, uh, the being an observer of some. Yeah. They were fairly common from what I understand. And the pilots always said, they said they were definitely intelligently controlled. There probably was no one inside it cause it was so small. Right. Yeah, but, yeah some of them were about the size of a basketball or something like that. So it was impossible for a human to be in them. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're common enough that in the, the fog of war, they get reported on. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I'm sure those pilots had other things to worry about than a ball of light, but they took the time to report it. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it, well, it, you know, and it wasn't just one or two guys either. I mean, it was, no, it's, that's a, what I mean. pretty, it's sub- fairly common. pretty substantial amount of reports of them. Right. But never, right. never one, uh, never one report of one being knocked out of the air, 
or uh, having one shot and say exploding or anything like that. They just I don't think anything like that. Yeah, I've never read anything like that either. I don't no, think it happened. They, they were always just uh, something in the something in the wings that was observing what was going on. But it's yeah. it's odd that they were attracted to a, a violent wartime situation. Right. Yeah. No, it is it is intriguing. It's always been an intriguing part of the war. I just was I it was just remarkable to me that we talked about everything but the UFO phenomenon happening during the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, that's it's good. I kind of wanted to stay away from the common stuff, but well, and and like I said, that's what I enjoy about doing these shows is not always necessarily focusing on on the things that you can hear on every other show about UFOs, you know, because they all right. do tend to focus on the 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 big name stories and you know the the certain the certain experience, you know, Kecksburg or this or that, and the other, not that they're mm-hmm. not, that they're not interesting and they should be talked about, but I like to talk about other things. Some of the more peripheral type, uh, stories that go along with this stuff. I think it just, it adds to the, um, the mystique of it. And, you know, it, there are, there's a lot of people involved in in this subject and it's not just the big names you see when you watch a ufo documentary on on prime or on netflix yeah there's a, a ton of other information out there yeah and speaking of i mean there there's also big names that are talking about another topic but it makes you start to think about it makes you start to relate it to this topic in a way which is another part of my whole my whole body of theory about what are what if they're a form of us and that's some of the topics that <clears throat> graham hancock and randall carlson have been talking about in the last are you familiar with randall carlson i am yes yeah so he helped contribute to graham hancock's latest book which is america before and uh, michiganders if you if you're a fan of Graham Hancock, you'll love his latest book because there's a really cool part, not cool at the time, it would have been horrible, but um, a really geologically interesting part of the Younger Dryas event that actually happened right here at Saginaw, um, according to the research they've done. So, And what was that? But uh, The fact that the Saginaw Bay was formed by uh, a deflected uh, comet. Really? Yeah. Yeah, if you look at uh, it's Randall Carlson's theory, um, it's been debunked a touch. But if you look at the body of evidence, um, there's a geological uh, formation called the Carolina Bays, uh, which is down in the Carolinas. And there's also a similar formation. I forget what the name is, but it's out west. And if you look at those, they're like ellipsoid holes in the ground and they're lakes but they're like these almost perfect ellipsoids, like an elongated circle, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at them on the United States map, they're in kind of a fan pattern uh, spreading out away from like Saginaw, Michigan. And it's, it was, it's been theorized, again, heavily debated, but then again, the whole Younger Dryas event is extremely, de- is hotly debated. But part of the debate is, 
whether or not the Saginaw Bay was formed by a comet at a low angle of attack, you know, deflection, striking the site, that glacier that was there, throwing, <clears throat> throwing just trillions of tons of material up into the atmosphere, and then it fell in a fan pattern back onto Earth, striking the Earth and creating those Carolina Bays and those other holes in the ground. Interesting. Yeah. So now Carlson and uh, um, the other gentleman, uh, Graham Hancock, Hancock, they've they've been uh, their their work is intertwined for for some years now. Um, oh they, yes, they both, yeah. They both got pretty popular on uh, Joe Rogan's yeah. podcast, and, uh, and Carlson has his own podcast now. I mean, he digs deep into a lot of these subjects, and he's he's a very intense mind. He did a lot of research for Graham Hancock's book, contributed materials to it. And one of them was Michigan. He was tasked with, you know, finding Michigan artifacts and what they're talking about. Um, but staying on Randall Carlson, he said something very interesting and it, it kind of changed my worldview a little bit. Um, he said it offhand and I don't, it may have been on the Rogan show. He's been on Rogan like what, three or four times. And so I, I can't pinpoint it, but he said something interesting. He said, you know, we could be right now, you and I, Eric, we could be, and everyone we know, could be living in the seventh iteration of, human, of the human race on Earth. In other words, taking into account interglacial events, catastrophic events like the Younger Dryas and things like that, there may have been as many as seven iterations of the human race that through some sort of cataclysm or dark age or ice age, you know, were wiped out, yep. wiped out. Um, you know, and at some point, you know, right before the younger Dryas event, ocean levels were 400 feet lower than they are today. And so look at, look at a U.S. map of cities and where do these normally these cities congregate to? And, you know, it's like what Randall Carlson says, you're going to kind of live on the coast, right? Yeah. And, you know, if and marine archaeology, archaeology is already not well funded. <laughs> marine archaeology is the least funded form of archaeology. And he said, if you really want to find some of these civilizations, you better be looking underwater to see if there's anything left. And. I don't know if are you aware of this? This is this is not hocus pocus. This is true that there's a stone like a, a rock type structure at the bottom of Grand Traverse Bay. Did you know that? Yeah, very similar to what people would kind of say, uh, like a Stonehenge type thing. Yeah, and yeah. there's a woolly mammoth carved in it. I mean, you can search it. it there's photos of it. They keep it a secret where it is, um, but. People, researchers have visited it and they photographed it. It's well documented. Right. And yeah. then just recently, Eastern Michigan University found another stone circle in the Straits of Mackinac. And right by right by that pipeline. If you if I could throw you listeners back to um, one of uh, I think it was with Chatan Noir, and I think it was my Lake Monsters of of Michigan episode, and I oh. asked I asked her about that. And she had uh, actually had a name for those, and I, I don't remember what the name was, uh, but essentially they were a hunting circle. 
where hmm. where mammoths were driven into this wow. this circle and they kind of so, trapped in there and so they had nowhere to go and that wow. would be where uh, a large group of hunters would go in and and do the beast in and they would right. have their food and so yeah and so these are just some of the places you know that are that are now under a lot of water right that weren't then not right. too long ago right, right. And so Carlson brought up a really interesting thing kind of offhand, but that's fed into this, this thing I can't stop thinking about, it seems. And he said it. He said, you know, there's been some periods of humanity that have actually, that could have actually lasted longer than what, where we're at. Mm-hmm. So what if they left? That's what he said. What if they left? What if they knew something bad was about to happen because something bad did happen 13,000 years ago. I mean, geologically you have the black mat, you have floodwaters everywhere. I mean, the younger Dryas event has now been pretty accepted as being a geological fact. And it was and, and bad. That, that, that also going back to, I don't know why I keep doing this because I'm typically not a, a biblical person, but um, that, that also kind of relates to what would be considered the Noahic uh, flood yes, in the Bible. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah. So we know that something bad happened then, but like what Carlson said, what if they left? And what if they're back? What if they didn't leave? What if they went underwater? <laughs> yeah. Or under the ice. <laughs> or under the ice. You know, so it's very intriguing when... He said that, and it just, I thought of, yeah, this, this may not have been, I mean, you look at, you don't have to look very far. You can read Graham Hancock's other books on Egypt and whatnot. I mean, the three great pyramids, no one knows who built those. Mm-hmm. The Egyptian government wants you to believe that they did, but there's not a lot of evidence about that. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence that those three pyramids predate the others by thousands of years. Well, and I have to kind of tread lightly on on this subject because my son is a geologist, cool. and uh, you know, when I look at the erosion on pictures of the the Sphinx in Egypt, mm-hmm. I see the same type of erosion that you would see. Uh, let's keep this in the state of Michigan, like along the outside edge of uh, um, the the pictured rocks yeah i I see i see a smooth uh a smooth erosion and when you look at something that's been sandblasted it doesn't it's it's a it's a more of a matte finish it's it's pitted it's very uh microscopic but it's 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 I don't know when I, yeah. you know, what he says about those things being eroded by, by floods versus thousands of years of sand whooping and beating against it. I kind of see it. Yeah. You well, know, so does and, Robert Schock and Robert Schock is Dean of geology at Boston university. He's, <laughs> he's the geologist that supports that, you know? You know, and that's it's a it's an interesting thing. And it, you know, when you when you look around the world, 
Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna massacre this name. I always do Machu Picchu. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> I did. I did get it right. You got uh, it. <laughs> um, you know that was built prior to thirteen thousand years ago. Correct. And the techniques or the abilities to create the stone structures that they have there. We don't have that ability anymore. <laughs> we can't. Oh, correct. We can't. Yeah. We can't uh, superheat a, a a granite stone to fit perfectly into a predetermined position. Well, uh, almost, yeah, almost like then, if it was designed in a in a three D printer to perfectly fit an imperfect opening. Exactly, and that's how the three great pyramids were built. There's no mortar holding those three together. I mean, there's been hundreds of pyramids built by pharaohs after those three, mm-hmm. and they've all crumbled into dust. They were yeah. all cemented together, and but those three are just as you described. There's If there's a hole this certain shape, somehow they made a stone fit that shape. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, a lot of those stones in the pyramid are over 100 tons. Yeah. And what I always tell my friends who kind of scoff, it's like, when Mr. Hancock wrote that book in 1996, there was less than six cranes on planet Earth that could lift 100 tons. You know, so when I see, when I see man-made, and I'll use the word loosely man uh, because we're not sure what made them, <laughs> but, you know, when you see a man-made structure like that and and it's so apparent that we do not have that the ability to recreate that now with the, the advanced technology that we currently have and we can't reproduce that, nor can we go back with our, our expertise and our scientists and, and, and look at and understand how it was done. Even if we can't reproduce it, um, that leads one to believe that there had to have been a substantial technology for the people of that time right to use to create this and where exactly. did the, where did that go so where did I it guess, go but where did it start you know what where that i guess that where that leads me is with randall carlson's assessment that there could have been up to seven cataclysmic restarts to our civilization kind of makes sense you know yeah there might be there might be some you know, one or two that we did not get that far along, and there could be two or three that we got even further than where we are right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't the know thing you... that the thing that does drive me freaking bonkers when I start thinking about this is why the massive difference in appearance of how we do things. So you look back at Machu Picchu and and several other uh, places like that throughout the world. Why is the why does it look so much different than anything that we create now? Why is you know yeah. why does civilization look the way it does to us now as opposed to what civilization looked like back then? Yeah, it could be that their technological base I mean there's been rumors that they feel like it was sound based. Yeah. And maybe sound based creates a different form factor and in that form factor it's a pyramid you know and which you also need to take into what 
what you also might want to take into account too is that a lot the people who built Machu Picchu and Teotihuacan and a lot of the Mayan ones, some of those have some of those people have been said that they were already there and they were appropriated by some of those races. They they were made by the Olmec, and no one knows who the Olmec are. Olmec needs old ones, right? Right. Yeah, it's and not so, a, it's not a it's not a finger pointing at a specific. Uh, um, group of people as much as it right. is just a, a, a generalization, a term of generalization. Yeah. I, I mean, have you read America before? I, I, I am a terrible, terrible reader. I, I not oh. that I, not that I can't read. I have a, yeah. uh, I have a terrible ability to, um, get into, you know, a page of text and then, my brain just starts wandering. Oh, I need to call Joe. Hey, I got oh, shit. I got to make a grocery list. I wonder where, uh, oh man, did I pay the bills? Yeah. I start doing that. And then I find I got to go back and I got to start reading all over again. And then, yeah. you know, I, I do the same thing. So it, well, dude, I got to drop, I got to drop some mind blowing shit on you right now. Oh, do it. <laughs> so, well, you probably already know like national geographic is, is using LIDAR and they're finding a ton of build of structures under the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? In the Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so that flies in the face of Western science, which for decades has said that the Amazonian rainforest could never have supported mm. that many human beings yeah. because of the fact that the soil is naturally very sandy. Check this out. There is a known, <laughs> they've, it's been known, but now they're discovering just how vast this is what the indigenous people call terra preta. Um, it's also known in the West as Amazonian dark earths. There are vast expansive tracts of this Amazonian dark earths, which is a very nutritious soil for agriculture. Some of these tracts, Eric, are the size of the country of France. Really? That are, that are in Amazon. Some of them are the size of France. Okay. Many of them are smaller, but still really big. All of that is man-made. All of it's man-made. All of that Amazonian dark earth is man-made by people prior, (laughs) prior to like the, the native natives people, the tribes still use that for agriculture, but no one, none of them did it. It was there by some prehistory, which is now they're finding all these pyramids and structures under the jungle. I mean, this is national geographic. This isn't, you know, the guy with the crazy hair, ancient aliens, dude, whatever the heck his name is. I can't remember. (laughs) This is national geographic finding these pyramids, but I guess finding a lot of them. I guess what I'm wondering, uh, and, and I mean, I'm not questioning you, but I'm wondering, What's what's leading them down the path to to make the the statement that that it's that man-made. dark earth is man made? Because it's it, it's what it's um, its composition is a mixture of ash that's been okay so that's been pumiced yeah. into um, what you would, what we would call compost. I guess so. so it's been terraformed. It's been terraformed. Yeah. That's exactly right. Huge. I mean, we're talking about a lot of mileage, right? 
and it's so all some, man-made. So someplace they could plant an awful lot of food to support an awful lot of people who could have filled it awfully large. Uh, yeah, hidden. the data that's the data that's coming back right now that's talked about in that book as to how much of the Amazonian basin was cultivated will shock you. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even get into it because I don't know the numbers, but it's a lot. Yeah, that's that's really so interesting. Where did these people go? You know. Yeah. Do they just die out? Or do well, they, I mean, or do when the Europeans and... came, when the Europeans came, a lot of them died. And that's been, yeah. I mean, that's a different whole different set of books. But um, yeah, they're starting to find out just how many people were there. But we're talking about people twelve to thirteen thousand years ago and beyond. We're we're not talking about. Hu- our human history. We're talking about something prior to us, you know? Yeah. So it's fascinating. So that's my whole thing about what if it is us? What if they left? What if they're back? What if they're under the, under the water? Maybe that was the safe place to go. And now they're, you know, and they're flying around. I mean, maybe they have no intention of leaving because they belong here too. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it? I mean, there's a lot of ocean, man. I mean, I mean, there's, and we've only explored what five percent, three or five percent, yeah, three or five percent. You're right, yeah. What's the rest of the ninety-seven percent has not even been mapped? Could you imagine what lives down there? It's crazy. When I was a kid, I read about Lonesome George. Did you ever read, did you ever hear about Lonesome George? No, I don't think so. It's well it's a well known thing. It's not again. This is not a made up. This is not made up shit. Lonesome George is a known sonar anomaly that happens. Oh my gosh, I can't. I'm going to kill it. But it happens periodically with regularity, and it is an extremely large life form oh yeah that's yeah, yeah. calling to a mate and there's never an answer never an answer yeah yeah the navy I, hears I, it all the time yep, yeah I, I i didn't recognize it by that name yeah they call him lonesome they call it he or she lonesome george yeah it's crazy i love i love living on earth you know always wondering about all this crazy stuff man well, I do it's, I it's recall that it's a completely different subject, but I, I mean, still talking about the ocean. I remember uh, some years back, <clears throat> a great white shark that had been tagged and uh, was part of a, a group's um, data, data collection. And, uh, you know, they would follow that tracking beacon that was tagged on that shark. And they were able to tell the migration from, you know, where it, where it lived to where it would go to breed. And I think it might've been off the coast of Australia um, was where it typically hung out. And then it would make a, you know, a 2000 mile trek to, to go to a specific area to breed. And uh, they'd been following it for years and years and they were getting, you know, minimum depths of, of maximum depths of the, that it would be found at. Um, you know, and, and it's regular, regularly traversed areas that it would, that would be, it's, uh, 
what it was what it was most common to the areas i guess right. i'm having a loss for words here and uh at one point their their detection showed that it was rapidly descending to depths prior that it had never been to before wow and they continued to track it and the speed began to increase as it fell to the the bottom of of these depths and then it just went out it's crazy so the thought is that something larger than this you know 18 18 to 20 foot great white shark who is arguably one of the apex predators of the ocean right had had been grabbed by something that took it into depths beyond what what creatures we know of right so you know yeah, what, no it's crazy man what, i love it what kind of leviathan uh, <laughs> came up from the depths of the marianas trench and uh and and decided to have an appetizer with a 20 foot shark yeah probably some sort of squid right i mean are you crazy or even yeah, who knows who knows but, yeah but you know Wild. when you when you look at some of the the most the bizarre bioluminescent creatures that that we are aware of that we do know of that come from the you know, the depths of the ocean um man to say that you know the idea that something from outer space well it, to that to that point there's already been what a group of was it 18 or 20 scientists that all pretty much are on board with the idea that the the common octopus uh its dna oh yeah supports uh something that's not not terrestrial dna yeah i've read that yeah there is there is that body of people that it's growing that are starting to support that idea yeah the octopus is such a crazy critter anyway so smart right well so smart and so much unlike anything else that's around course yeah absolutely this this extremely strong agile boneless uh (laughs) creature that uh can can blend with its its surroundings in a camouflage that is nearly undetectable something that can you know weasel its way out of the smallest crack in a tank and and knowingly find its way to safety yeah you know i mean there there's the one story of the one octopus i I forget it was it i think it was at a um a rather large aquarium where it got out of the tank and followed the, the the pipes that all the water was being provided to the other tanks climbed along that and and then found a tank with another octopus that was the same breed as it was <laughs> and and went and got in that tank with it. Yeah. You know, I mean. That's, did you ever hear about the one that hated the light? No. There was one, it's, there was one where there was, um, I, it was either caught in a security camera or they figured it out somehow that there was an octopus in captivity but there was a light that was left on all night 
I mean, it was permanently like that's the light you leave on, right, or yeah. whatever. And I guess it was keeping it up at night. It hated it, so it crawled out of its tank and shot water at the light and shielded it out. Oh my word! <laughs> yeah, that's that's another story from the adventures of octopus keeping. So, yeah. Well, Crazy. hey, Jeff, let's let's wind this up with uh, yeah. with your with your personal experience as far as uh, unknown things in the sky. Yeah. So it's, it's a story that I, it happened so long ago, sometimes I forget about it, but um, it it definitely happened. And it's definitely, it's a very, what I would call benign experience, but yeah, it's a good way to close this out. And I had a great time as always. Um, So living in Traverse city, um, you know, we got the West Bay and we got the East Bay. And uh, when I was a teenager, I worked for this small family owned company and uh, my boss at the time was really into fishing and he would go to the bay and troll, you know, we'd troll for salmon, lake trout, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to go one night. It was uh, 1986. Um, I was 16 and we were out in the middle of West Bay and it was, it was about 10, 30, 11. We were, we had just, landed a pretty big fish um and we were and i noticed when we were fighting it it was there was a light over us and i thought it was the moon because it gave off that kind of pale glow right like a full it was a pretty clear night um there was a few clouds but i remember feeling like wow it's really cool that we have this full moon out that we can kind of see you yeah. know, cause it's kind of freaky to be out there that late at night, um, when it was really dark and it wasn't. And so we were focused on landing this big gigantic Chinook and when we got done, all of a sudden done, we both realized that the light that had kind of lit our little fishing trip was not the moon cause the moon was over here and it was this extremely, uh, bright, orb if you will very large and i don't know how to explain this part but it was swirling but i don't i tried to describe it because the paper the local paper ended up hunting me down because i guess this was viewed all across the eastern seaboard this light oh really so yeah uh in fact i you know you know that i moved and so i have the newspaper clipping somewhere um i tried to search it out but it's not, it was so unimportant. It's not even in the annals of the local paper, but it was mystery light seen in Grand Traverse area. And so we were, we watched this light for a very long time and it kind of moved in this weird corkscrew pattern in the sky. And then we both kind of freaked out because we realized this thing is still there and we're in the middle of the, you know, the bay very far from home. And so we trucked it out of there and I remember still looking at it when I was driving home, you know, along the Bayshore Drive there, heading back to heading back home. It was still over the bay. It was fairly large. And uh, the next day, um, I was working that day, and someone asked me about it. And the next thing I knew, that person knew someone at the paper. So that person, the paper called me and asked me what my experience was. So, so you were 16, year, 16 years old and you got interviewed by the newspaper about a, a light over the, over the Correct. bay. Huh? Yeah. And I guess it was, 
I called the air, I called, there was a air station somewhere and I, I, I actually tried to call them. They wouldn't even talk to me, but I thought I was, I thought I was some 16 year old sleuth. Right. Yeah. So I was going to try to call They, I think I called the weather station and I called the next day and no one knew really anything. But then the paper had told me that it was about to be in the news that that was seen across the Eastern seaboard, the whole Eastern part of the U S so, uh, yeah, so that was my experience. Very benign, nothing crazy, no lost time. Well, you would think that um, the the Coast Guard station that's that you're in uh, Traverse City would have would have had some kind of indications of of something being in that airspace because they had uh, they had all their helicopters and stuff up there. Yeah, like I said, I was only sixteen. I wasn't smart enough, so I, I didn't call them. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, I don't. What What were yeah. your What were your conversations with the gentleman that took you out? Your boss that took you out fishing. What did What were your conversations like about that? It was it was kind of like I was intrigued, right? Because I was already kind of into the topic of it, but he wasn't as comfortable as I was. I mean, I was uncomfortable, right? Because it's one thing to talk about; it's another thing when you're in this little boat oh, out sure. in the middle of West Bay and it's floating above you. Um, it wasn't. I don't. I couldn't tell you that it was coming at us. I couldn't tell you that it was flying away from us. It was just there. Um, I I recall that he was significantly more disturbed than I was. And so can you take, decided, a, can you take a guess at, uh, like a distance, uh, how high up above you was it? And, uh, how large would you, would you guess? I mean, I, I know say, you were 16, but yeah, I would say several hundred feet cause it was above the clouds and the clouds seemed high in the sky to me that night. I do remember that. And that's what I thought it was. Like, I thought it was the moon kind of behind a cloud. That was the kind of the glow it was giving off. Yeah. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't until after that we're like, wait, that's not the moon because the moon's this little sliver over here and it's not even a full moon night because, you know, the moon is like the little crescent over here and there's this big bright light that was the size of the moon. So in terms, I'm not saying it was as big as the moon, but, you know, in its position in the sky, it was, I mean, I feel it was several hundred feet up above the clouds for sure, maybe even thousands of feet, but it was fairly large, you know, um, it was a sphere. It wasn't a disc. Um, it wasn't triangle. It was a, it was a sphere, and it was very bright. It was like another moon in the sky. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of light to be uh, casting it down on on top of you guys. It really was. I mean, we if it hadn't been in the sky, it would have been a much darker night for us to be fishing, and I, I it wasn't discussed in the boat, but I remember saying, you know, it's kind of nice. I remember thinking to myself, it's kind of nice. We can actually see this fish. It's not just some dark shadow flopping around on the boat. We can see it. You know, the moon, the moonlight or what we thought was the moonlight was illuminating it. So was was the something, was the moon actually out? It was, but it was a small crescent. It wasn't full, but you know how your mind, what I was trying to describe is the fact that I thought it was a full moon based on the amount of ambient light in the air. Right. Around me. But my point being that you were able to confirm that you had that light in the sky as well as the moon. Yeah, but the moon was not well the moon was not even close to being full. Yeah. It was a it was a sliver. You know, it's in one of its waning it was at its maximum wane, I would say, or close to it. Whereas this was like a full moon. Yeah. Nothing nothing weird beyond that. No uh 
didn't just take, a weird didn't take you six hours to to land the fish or or yeah, no. uh, anything like that no missing time no i was i don't remember any well i didn't experience any missing time um nothing like that there was a weird feeling i'll say that but you know you feel kind of overcome by the strangeness of the whole thing and you feel i remember feeling very small and very exposed yeah yeah that's a it's a large body of water large body of water and you're out in the middle of it in a pretty small boat yeah and that, that was pretty big it was cool though i mean it wasn't i never felt under threat yeah so but yeah that's my story well, Jeff, I've seen other, I mean, I've seen others, but that was the big one, it, you know, as far as the other ones that you've seen, um, similar to what you experienced when you were 16 or, uh, no, different? the other one was very quick, but very powerful in one respect. Um, one of my friends was spending the weekend with us at our house and he had locked his keys in his car and, you know, it was Saturday night. He was having to go back home on Sunday. So he's like, when we were all done having our social time, he's like, I got to try to get in my car and get my keys out. So everyone else went to bed. It's like one in the morning and where we live, where I lived at the time was pretty well, not a lot of noise pollution. And so I told him I'd keep him company and help him. But what I really was doing was watching stars while he was trying to dig through the back window of his car to get into his car for the next morning. Yeah. And I remember watching a satellite, pretty bright satellite or what I thought was a satellite go across the sky. I was stone sober. Uh, I don't drink. And I watched that satellite go across the sky, pretty bright. And I was just about to tell him, Hey man, check out that satellite. And it made a right turn. Uh, they don't do that. No, they don't. And that's the only other one that I, I can attribute to something that I can't explain, but that happened. That was, that was cool, but nothing like the other one. The other one was very in your face. So it's yeah. neat stuff. You know, if people would spend half the amount of time that they spend looking down at their phones or down at their feet while they're walking and, and, and just took some time to look up, I think, right. I think you'd be amazed not only by the, the beauty of, of what's above us in the heavens, but, uh, there's, there's some things up there that just don't act the way they should. Right, exactly. You know, and it, yeah, it's it, it cracks me up when you start seeing these uh, oh UFO pages on Twitter or uh, uh, Instagram, and they post a, a picture of what's obviously the uh, the uh, SpaceX um, satellite chain. Oh yeah, the Starlinks. The Starlinks, yeah. and uh, you know, it's like, come on, people. <laughs> you know, I mean, the amount of the amount of space junk that's up there is is truly staggering. anybody Anybody listening can go easily go online and and Google uh, space junk, and they have it broke down into uh, even by the size of of the space junk. You know, stuff yeah. stuff the size of a school bus, stuff that's the size of a you know, an orange or, uh, you know, a quarter. Um, but there's all these pieces that are accounted for. And uh, the the problem with that is that they don't typically refract light bright enough to be seen by us down here on 
terra firma, but these other things that are, are zipping around, they're producing an illumination that's all on their own. Right. And, and that's another thing that bugs me about them is why would they want to be, why wouldn't they just be stealth? Why wouldn't they just be dark? Why be seen? Because everyone's looking at their phones. <laughs> you know, I mean, why, why, if you have the intelligence and the, and the technology behind you to be able to, uh, leave, leave earth's gravity and, and zip right. around out in space. Why would you want to be noticeable? Because maybe they don't care if they're seen. Yeah, I didn't mean to be glib just then. It was just a joke. No, but, no, yeah, I, 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 exactly. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just asking stupid questions. But it's like, why, why would you not? I mean, if it was me, if I was, you know, I'd be like, no, we gotta, we gotta stay, we gotta stay cool, man. We don't want anybody to see us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, maybe they feel it's not their problem to not be seen it's someone else's problem to cover them up or maybe if or maybe if there was truly a nefarious nefarious uh, side to these things maybe they would be just uh, cloaked and, and right. not not be seen but if they That's don't have point. if they don't have anything to hide right maybe they want to be seen like you were saying That's a really good point actually yeah fun times man yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. And these are these are fun subjects to talk about. You've been a great guest again. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad Thanks we were to able all to... the listeners to put up with this rambling on. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. It was. It was. It was an awful lot of fun. Cool. Jeff, well, we're gonna we're gonna cut this one down and uh, call it good, and uh, keep in touch. And. Uh, yeah. Like I said, people, just spend some time looking up. Even during the day, just when it's a cloudy day and you've got these big, puffy, billowy clouds that have big, gaping blue spots in the middle of it, just put a put a pair of sunglasses on and and start watching the edges of your clouds. Just look, watch around the outside edges of the clouds. I bet you'll be surprised. It'll be tiny little white blobs that kind of dart in and out of those uh, those edges that uh, they make you wonder they do make you wonder alright folks until next week stay safe and stay uncomfortable I want to hear your story I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. Share the show on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter all at Uncomfortable Podcast. And until next week, my friends, stay uncomfortable.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.